Hey, thanks so much to our team for leading us today. And um, welcome. If we haven't met, maybe in person or at all before, uh, maybe you're just joining us online for the first time. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And you know, this last week, I got, um, I got a text from one of my best friends in all the world, and it simply read this, how's your week going? Simple, almost mundane, but I knew what he meant. Because this is the week where, well, a year ago this week uh, that I lost my brother Jordy. And so his simple word of, how are you doing? I knew what he was asking And over the course of just a few text messages back and forth, my friend and I shared our affection with each other. We shared words of encouragement in Christ. And then he, (laughs) I I mean, I can just remember thinking as I was reading this too, I was like, I, I was sensing from what he was saying, like, you are loved, you're valued. And man, I need friends like that. And I need to be a friend like that. As we were just exchanging our appreciation uh, for that kind of friendship too, he texted me this, a verse that, you know, a lot of you would probably be familiar with. And it it just says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one friend, one person sharpens another. That's from Proverbs 27. And that process of encouraging and challenging and sharing in life, that's one of the key features of what true friendship is all about. And it's what leaps off the page in Acts chapter 20 and 21 that we're looking at today. Now, I realize that I preached a message that was really keyed in on friendship um, almost exactly a year ago. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what? A year isn't too short a time to preach another message on friendship, but probably too long. Especially in the moment we're in right now, where a lot of us are feeling starved for that connection. We're in a time where the separation is maybe beginning to wear us down, and Lord willing, um, that will open up soon. But you know, this is a moment for us to lean into, to think well about what true friendship means, even getting creative in this moment as well. I was reminded by a friend from Prince George just recently uh, that we need to focus not on what we can't do, but on what we can, and then get creative with that. Now, in our series in, in the book of Acts, we're jumping back into it like we started last week, and we're following along with Luke. That's the author of this book. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, that's part one, and then Acts, this is part two, same story. It's all about what God is doing to to make the world new again. And so in, in this part two of it, we've been tracing how Luke is telling the story of how the, the, the church was born by the power of the Spirit, and how because of Jesus' commission in the power of the Spirit, the church is taking this news of Jesus all over the known world. In fact, it's done in response to this commission. Jesus says to his first followers, and actually we're caught up in this now too, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this book is really the unfolding of how the Spirit is leading the church to cross boundaries and bring this news to the whole of the world. But it's not just a history lesson. Oh no, of course Luke wants us to to know the history. It is that, but it's so much more as well. You see, God is still speaking to us through this text. He's prodding us 
in the power of the Spirit to take up our role to join in, to live out the next chapter that God is writing. So this is our story too. This is where our story started, but we're writing the next piece of it as well. So let's just take a moment and pray as we begin. Father, I'm so just grateful and we are grateful that you inspired Luke to write this text in just this way. And Lord, help us not to run past things we need to notice today, but uh, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts in just the ways we need to hear it. And, and I pray in the words of the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So speak to us now. Amen. So today, and the next series of messages on the book of Acts, we're really going to key in on this final part of Paul's life and his ministry and his work. And here's what we need to see. Last week, we, we, we had Paul ministering in Corinth and in Ephesus, and the church is growing. Uh, he's preaching. It's, I mean, it gets riotous and crazy, <laughs> but, uh, but what we see is Paul is, is really focused in his mission at that point. But then as we look at chapter 20 and 21, we see this shift begin to take place. This section is often called a travel log, which means it's like, it's like a, I don't know, an Instagram story of someone's vacation somewhere. Not a vacation, by the way, but it's a travel log. It's a story of his movement, of his travel. He's there. He's got a bunch of his companions. They're leaving Ephesus, and now let's pick up in chapter 20, starting at verse 1. When the uproar had ended... Now, he's talking about this riot back in Ephesus. That's where we left Paul in this group. It says that Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, I know this is the kind of text that like you just dread being asked to read out loud when you're in a Bible study. Like way too many names that you don't know how to pronounce. But that's the exact point I want to make. Look at all the names. Paul is surrounded by his friends, by his co-workers in the gospel. Now, jump down with me in that chapter to verse 36, just real quick here. Paul is now speaking to the church leaders in the city of Ephesus. He's finished up his, his speech to them, and then we read this. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all. They're on a beach. He's kneeling in the sand. He knelt down with them all and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him back to the ship. We see the same kind of thing come up again in chapter 21. Paul's traveling, but there's people everywhere. They're trying to warn him, don't go to Jerusalem. They're arguing with him, and they're crying with him. Up to this point in the story, we've seen Paul, and he's been 
you know, working a mission um, plan. He's been going to places strategically. Of course, the Spirit is leading him. Of course, there's disruption along the way. But here, there is this shift that's happening. Look at what we read in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 22. He's speaking to those same church leaders. That's the same speech. He says this, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. So what's going on in this section in Acts? Uh, Tim Keller, he preached a great sermon on this in the late 90s. It's an older sermon now. I'm going to cite it a number of times. But he actually draws out, I think, really well the shift that's happening. He says this, in the rest of his life, it's just one trial after another trial, a narrow escape, an attack, his life in danger, one more narrow escape. He's totally out of control. His life is one more crushing trouble after another. Starting here, you will see he spends an enormous amount of time with friends. Look carefully. Everywhere he goes, he's surrounded by friends. They walk with him to the beach. They, he spends hours and hours and hours weeping and discussing and talking and arguing. Suddenly, he begins to swim in friends. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'll come back to it again. Uh, Pastor Colton, in his sermon on prayer, he asked this question of all of us at the staff meeting too. He said, if you only had one week left to live, what would you do? Money's not an issue. You could travel anywhere. No COVID restrictions. And my first thought was, barbecue, a huge party, and everyone's invited. Like, gather the friends. And, and this is kind of what we're seeing here, in a sense. Paul is now, uh, you just see the people after people, name after name, gathered around. And so he's heading toward what he knows is going to be the end of his life. Somehow he knows, he keeps being warned by the Spirit, this is not going to go well. But he keeps going anyways. So what's happening? He's gathering with people. He's traveling with friends. He's interacting. Even with people he hardly knows, you see this level of intimacy in their connection. And two, he's making sure that Jesus and Jesus' ways stay at the center of everything. So I want to focus on those two elements and then draw out their implications for our moment as well. So first, Paul is surrounded by friends. What do we make of this? Well, Tim Keller, again, brings out this significant point. What does it tell us? To need and want friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of health. Now, not too long ago, I sat down with one of the, just the sharpest and most sincere young adult guys that I know. And we, we had this conversation about friendship because he just felt like it was such a challenge now that he's in his 20s to develop those friendships like were so easy when we were kids. You, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? This young man in his 20s, he noted that basically all of his friendships were based around doing things, which is fine. But in, an, in a season where he was injured, he couldn't participate in these outdoor pursuits with his friends. And he noticed that, well, they're just not around anymore. He's not able to participate in these events, so that's just kind of the end of it. He's alone in this moment. Like, the friendship was really based on, hey, do you want to go do something fun together? And it had no depth beyond that. Now, we, we spent some time then kind of unpicking what was going on there. But, and one of the things I pointed out 
was the fact that in Western culture, like the waters that we swim in, we are deeply influenced by the psychology of Sigmund Freud. Now, now Freud, his biggest, most influential idea was basically that all relationships at root are sexual. That's what he says. Like, have you ever heard of the term a Freudian slip? That's when someone says something that could be taken, if your mind is in a dirty enough space, as an innuendo, as something uh, to do with sexuality. It, he, he, you would say that, oh, those Freudian slips, that's evidence that really all our relationships at root are, are, just, are just sexual. They're both sex. Now, <laughs> begin working that idea into popular culture for decade and decade and decade, and what do you get? Well, you get what social science researcher Nobi Wei recounts in her study of subjects. She looked at men in the East Coast of the United States over two decades. Here's what we find. Before adolescence, the boys talked in shockingly intimate terms about their male friends. Their closest friendships share the plot of love story more than that of Lord of the Flies, Wei notes puncturing our stereotype that while girls want deep conversation, boys communicate in grunts and prefer to shoot each other with toy guns. But Wei also found that as they grew older, the boys lost the intimacy they once enjoyed. Afraid of being perceived as gay or feminine, they withdrew. Many of them told Wei they don't have time for their male friends, even though the desire for these relationships remains. So I'm sitting with this young adult, and he's grieving the loss of real connection with male friends. And that's what he was feeling. That's the experience he was having. Like, it feels like we're not allowed to have close connection and friendships. And now my response is the answer isn't to shrug and say, well, oh, well, I guess that's just the way it is. No, our response needs to be to address bad ideas, like that of Sigmund Freud in this case, with the goodness of what we hear in the scriptures, the goodness of friendship that God created us for. And we really see it in this text. Now, Wesley Hill, he's a New Testament scholar. He notes that this isn't just an issue for men. He says this, I speak, for instance, with many young mothers who tell me they're lonely. Where there once were close with other women, the demands of feedings, naps, and early bedtimes now hinder those friendships. Our modern routines of nuclear living arrangements hinder our finding and keeping close friends. A friend recently told me, in college, there was a recognized script for finding friends. Now that I'm in my 30s, everyone seems to have their friend group settled, and I don't know the script anymore. Here's my guess. My guess is that I talk about friendships and this idea about true and, and deep spiritual friendships. Many of us have a longing in our heart to really experience that. Maybe you can relate with some of those stories that I've just been sharing right now. And maybe we feel it even more acutely in the space that we're in at the moment. Again, I think Keller says it well. He says this, if you're lonely, if you want friends, if you want closer friends, if you feel lonely, you're not dysfunctional, you are fine. You're lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because you're not a machine. You're lonely because you are built this way. 
and you really are. And that's really our big first point. We see Paul, he's surrounded by these friends. Why? It's not immaturity, that's maturity. You want friends in your life, that's not dysfunction. You're fine. I love that. So friends, number one, are necessary and they're available to everyone. We were created to be in connection with others. We were created for friendship with God and, and, and other people. Now, the only word of malevolence, which means a bad word in the early chapter of Genesis, uh, two chapters, is it is not good for a man to be alone. Up to that point, everything was good, 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 very good. Now you hear this not good word. What is it? It's not good for a man to be alone. Now, uh, that is not limited to speaking about marriage, I don't think. Of course, it does include that. As though if, you know, unless you're married, you kind of have no, no hope of real true friendship. Of course, if you are married, you would hope that your, sp- so your spouse would be a true friend as well. But here's what Wesley Hill goes on to note in his article on friendship. He says that not everyone will or can be married. Hill himself happens to be same-sex attracted. And he knows and believes what the Bible teaches about human sexuality and marriage. He, he knows that marriage is for one man and one woman exclusively. And that's, that's the only bounds in which um, sexual practice happens. So for him, he's saying marriage isn't an option. Parenting isn't an option. But friendship is. Friendship is for everybody. And Jesus tells us that marriage, remember, Jesus actually wasn't married, just to note that. Friendship as we know it, Jesus tells us, will be so transformed in the life after this life that we won't even really recognize it from our frame right now. If you want to look that up, just read Matthew chapter 19. More than that, Jesus also relativizes the family. There's a scene where uh, Jesus is teaching. He's got a group of people. They're likely inside of a home or some building. And someone says, hey, your mom and your brothers, they're outside. They're looking for you. They want to have a word with you. And Jesus' response is, who are my mother and my brothers? And it says he begins to look around the room and says, anyone who does the will of my father is my mother, my brothers, my sisters. So Jesus himself takes the family and says, that's that's not ultimate anymore. There's connection that actually is meaningful, that cuts across even family lines. And more, Jesus tells us that the greatest love in the world is what? When a person lays down their life for a friend. Of course, Jesus is pointing to how he's about to lay down his life for us, his friends. And notice beautifully, he calls his followers his friends there. So yes, our world is often suspicious of friendships like, what does that mean? Uh, or our world conditions us to live as though we're all to be self-sufficient, independent of others. But these words of Jesus, they invite us into true spiritual friendships. But what does it mean to live in it? Well, let's look a little bit closer at our text today. Second thing is the center of spiritual friendships. We just saw the fact of spiritual friends. Paul is surrounded by them. He's swimming in them. He needs them. So do you. Let's look a little bit closer now. Jump in with me back at chapter 20, verse 7. Let's pick up from where we ended reading there. So they've just been traveling. They land in Troas, and, and we read this. On the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. 
Now, this is most likely not a special meeting just because Paul showed up to town. This is just a regular weekly gathering of believers. The first day of the week. What day is that? Well, that's resurrection day. That's Sunday. And so this tells us something really important. The whole uh, of, the, of the Christian practice of meeting for worship has been transformed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No longer are they meeting on the Jewish Sabbath, the Saturday. It tells us on the first day of the week. Almost certainly we're talking about a Sunday here. And notice why. They gathered to break bread. Now, this refers to both an actual meal, like eating together, that the church would share, and to the practice of remembering Jesus through the Lord's Supper. These two things were often put together. So this community is birthed out of and bound together by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything they do now is structured around the story of Jesus. God who's come for us. God who lived for us in the flesh. God who died in our place on a cross. And God who was raised again. That's what we're talking about when we speak about Jesus. And because of that, like if that's true, well, no wonder we see what Paul does next. No wonder we see the depths of what he goes to to help these people stay focused on Jesus. Look what happens next. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, they've just met for dinner. Now it's midnight, okay? This is hours have passed There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, um, I'm going to take issue a little bit with that NIV translation there of the on and on. Um, I think it gives us the wrong idea. As I was reading it through in the Greek text again, um, I think Eckhart Schnabel, in his commentary, he's right. Uh, this would give us the sense that Paul is kind of like droning on and on. It suggests that he's the sort of speaker that kind of, you know, forgets the audience, uh, isn't paying attention to the time, is delivery is monotonous and the content is boring. That's not what's happening here. A better translation would be, as the NET puts it, Paul continued to speak for a long time. So the text isn't saying Paul is boring and long-winded. No, Uh, it tells us that he cares enough for these folks and about the good news of what he's speaking of that he has lots to share with them. And they're there. They're paying attention. So what we see happening with Eutychus, man, that has way more to do with him than Paul, actually. Like, maybe he's just not that interested. Or maybe he just had a really long day at work and he probably shouldn't be sitting in a windowsill for look what happens next. When he was sound asleep... He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. (laughs) Then he went upstairs and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. First, awesome. Oh, that God would keep doing miracles like that. That we would have the faith and pray for God to do big things. Yes, indeed. But notice, (laughs) second, notice what they do next. Like, guys, he's alive. He went upstairs and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. When I read that, I was like, come on. 
how many church meetings would have been like, like maybe that's enough for one night. You know, we've preached until midnight. Uh, someone died. He was raised up again. Maybe we should just go home and like have a sleep. Nope. Paul, that church community, they're like, let's do this. And they just keep going. But here's, here's the point. Paul cared enough about the glory of Christ. He cared enough about these people that he had a moment to spend with that he wanted nothing less than to share in communing in the life of God together around a meal and talking about the glory of the kingdom and what it meant to live the gospel in life, even if it meant being up all night long. So Paul demonstrates this deep heart of concern for these friends. He doesn't want them to miss a thing. I love that. I think there's actually something in that for us. See, true spiritual friendship can be hard. I mean, it means commitment for the good of the other, even at cost to us, even when it's challenging. It will mean a willingness even to go, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, of, of speaking the truth in love. Man, that is an uncomfortable thing. It's not one or the other. It's not just, just truth or just love. It's both combined. Man, that's hard to hold together, but that's what we are called to. And I know that um, people almost have an allergic reaction when they hear the word accountability. Um, and for good reason, I think. For the idea can way too easily be misused. Can be the name given to something more akin to a power trip. Uh, French philosopher Michel Foucault, he argues that all truth claims are power plays. Man, they're just a power trip to get power over other people, to manipulate them. He's right. Truth claims can be power plays, and they often are in the hands of broken human beings. But not all truth claims are. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. That is a pretty significant truth claim. Like, truth, I am that. Wow, okay. But instead of grabbing power for himself, he willingly dies at the hands of his oppressors. Rather than seeking power for himself through these truth claims, Jesus was actually seeking the good of others, even those who were crucifying him. That is the gospel-shaped pattern of life that the Christian community is to emulate. So, truth, yes. In love, possible? Yes, hard, absolutely. But you know, another uh, feature, another thing that powerfully disinclines us to be close and in these relationships of accountability is the fear of losing a friendship. Like there can be these unspoken and unnamed social contracts that we just kind of carry around with us. And it goes like this. Um, I won't challenge you if you don't challenge me. The problem, of course, is that for those who take the Christian faith seriously, that kind of unspoken social contract leaves everyone safe in the sense of unchallenged, but it also leaves everyone unchanged. Ironically, out of our fear of losing a friendship, that's what keeps us from having a friendship that's, well, more than shallow. As Keller puts it, if you don't need people, if you're afraid of accountability, if you're afraid of people looking inside, if you're afraid of people nosing into your business, if you're afraid of love, like the less you want friends the less like God you are. Don't you realize what's the purpose of creation? What's the purpose of redemption? What's the purpose of everything God has done since creation? To make us friends. And folks, he's not wrong. That's what God is doing through Jesus. 
He's making us friends of God and each other. So to address this barrier to deep spiritual friendship, we must recognize the good news of Jesus not only is about gaining freedom from sin and closeness to God, it is those things, of course, but more. It's about the serious business of being transformed into the very likeness of Jesus in our character and expressing that through our connection in the body of Christ. I don't know about you, but for me, wow, there's still a lot of change that needs to happen. And God has given us each other as a major source of that movement to Christ-likeness. So we can see that Paul like he's swimming in these friendships. And these are grounded in the common sharing in Christ that they have, and they're pushing each other deeper into the life that God made them for together. Just listen to how Paul challenges the church leaders in Ephesus to keep this in view. Look at uh, now 20. We're going to jump to verse 25. He writes this, Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He knows that he's heading for his death. He, he's, he's sure of it. But he goes on to say this. These are like famous last words, right? Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, Paul, he is addressing uh, leaders of the church. He's addressing the pastors in Ephesus. That's who he's talking to. But what he says... I think actually does have implications for all of us. For all of us will either be participating in helping others grow closer to Jesus and his ways or not. Yes, leaders do have a particular uh, and significant role in teaching ministry and, and caring for um, the people of God, the church, but every Christian is to have a level of proficiency with the scriptures that we can actually truly help each other to live out the gospel in a way that honors God. St. Augustine in the 5th century, he says that a person speaks more or less wisely to the extent that they are more or less proficient in the scriptures. And think of it, you know, we go to our friends with um, maybe an issue that we're having, a challenge with a coworker. Um, a parenting issue, something that's going on in our marriage. And we go and we talk to our friends about it. But my question is, what are we actually offering each other in that moment? Christian friends will be about helping um, fit our challenges into the framework of, of what God has done for us in Jesus and what he's calling us in terms of how to live in relation to what God has done. And so now, as we, as we close, I want, I want to leave us with uh, a couple really precise pieces, but I want to leave you more with a picture, just to be burned into your mind. This is just from verse 36. I read this already, but I want us to just key in on this and then, and then let it sit with you. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them 
and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and, keep, and kissed him. So what's true spiritual friendship? Jesus is at the heart of all of it. It's knees in the sand and prayer. See, everyone in that picture is looking to Jesus together. He's at the center of it. One writer says it like this, that for those who are not maybe fused together through our bond in Christ, through the work of the Spirit, that we often just use friendships to get something that we need from others rather than simply to give of ourselves. And so what do we see here? We see weeping, embracing, and a brotherly kiss of affection. Because they share in the love of God together, they share in His love for each other too. And so with this picture in mind, um, maybe there's a few really practical steps that you can take today. Number one, there may be someone, a friend of yours, who you've lost some connection with. My guess is right now, people need more friends, not less. They need closer friends, not more distant ones. How can you be a friend to that person? Maybe there's someone that you need to reach out to again. And I know, with COVID restrictions, it makes it really hard. We could focus on all that we can't do. Here's what I want you to do. Focus on what you can do. You can do a drive-by visit. You can wave to them from your car and shout to them from the sidewalk. You can do that. You could phone them, like good old-fashioned phone call. Give them a call. You could FaceTime them. You could text them. You can send them a Facebook message. You can share pictures with them of what's going on in your home and your life. We can still be building friendships in this time. Is there a friendship that you need to cultivate a bit more deeply? And I would add this. When you do, would you let words of affection pass between you? Would you let it be more than about the Super Bowl that we just uh, experienced or more than about the really cold weather that's happening? Would you let words about Jesus pass between you as well in your encouragement of them? Second, um, if you have a friendship that's in need of repair, this is the time to sort that through. If you know you've done something wrong or if you know that you just have to swallow your pride and go to somebody and make that friendship up again, remember, even Jesus says, if you know that there's something between you and a friend, like, leave your gift at the altar. Don't even bother going to worship at this point. Go and work it out with that person first. So maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe there's someone that you need to reach out to and just work that through. And third, I'm going to take this directly from Keller's message because he shares his own story here, and I, I think it's important. He says this, some of you need to just in general get rid get rid of all the hurt feelings and the fussiness. Our friendships are supposed to be about Jesus, not about, do you like me? How well do you like me? There shouldn't be all this intrigue. There shouldn't be all this awful self-consciousness. It wasn't long ago that a friend of mine, who I've known for a long time, called me up and said, do you know what? For years, I've been upset that I call you five times for every time you call me. Then I began to realize that our lives have gone differently. I'm a private person, and you're much more of a public person. I want you to know, I'm glad you're my friend. Wow. He took all of this off of me. What was he doing at that point? He was getting rid of the intrigue. He was getting rid of all the self-consciousness. He was starting to say, I'm full because of Jesus Christ is my friend. 
I can love you better because I don't need you so badly. Maybe there's a friend that you need to do that unburdening with as well today. Just to take the intrigue out of it. To take out the sense of of awful self-consciousness, as Keller calls it. So what have we seen today? Boy, Paul needed friends. Do you know that Jesus when he's facing the the trials of his final days, he tells his friends, come, pray with me. Jesus needs friends. How could you think you don't? So cultivate those friendships. With Jesus' help, let's be committed to the good, hard work of cultivating true spiritual friends. And it doesn't happen overnight. Folks, this takes time and effort and commitment. And it will also call you to die. You will have to die to your friend, or to your pride, pardon me. You'll have to die to your own ego. Because in order to get truly to a place of openness, you're going to have to be ready to say, uh, it's not about me anymore. How can I build into this friendship with you? It will call us to die because Jesus died to make us true friends. So let's be those for each other. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you that through this text you show us the value of friendship. And not only that, you show us a a little insight into how friendship isn't just about uh, enjoying good times together, but it goes farther. It goes right down to the very core of sharing in our lives with tears and prayers And we pray, Father, that as the church uh, here at Summit or or wherever people are listening from, that we would be those who are known for our deep love for one another. Lord, you know that we're deficient in this area. All of us are in some way. So by your Spirit's help, would you make us great friends? And Lord, we thank you that through your work, Jesus, you've made us your friends. Maybe there's someone even listening today who needs to, for the first time, just bend their knees, put their knees in the sand, and stand alongside of who are now brothers and sisters in Christ because they've come to put their trust in you. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that in you we can truly rejoice in all that you've given us. We give you praise. We give you honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen.